we have been looking at the final days of Jesus' life. In fact, we have gone from looking at the years to the months to the days leading up to his crucifixion to at this point we are at the final hours of his life. And the scriptures come to a, a strong point of, of slowing down to help us understand the gravity of what takes place in the life of Jesus at this time. Last week we studied, or the week before that, we studied Christ's presence before the Sanhedrin. The high priests, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they've gathered together, there's 70 of them plus the uh, chief priest, making it a group of 71 of the Supreme Court, and they tried Jesus. And at that point, uh, all they could do was be angry with Jesus for who he claimed to be. But when they bring him to Pilate, what stood out, I believe, the most to me in the last week that we looked at this was the incontestable innocence of Jesus. It was irrefutable. He could not be accused of anything legitimately. Pilate, and then with implied from Herod, pronounced the innocence of Jesus in Luke chapter 23 five times. Five times this one who knew no sin is pronounced even by the Roman governor to be innocent. What can I charge him with? This man has no crime. He is not deserving of death. But before those Pharisees, before the scribes, before the Sanhedrin, we read this in Mark chapter 14. And the chief priest said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. In the previous hours, under scrutiny and accusation by the high priests, the scribes, and elders, Jesus was ridiculed. And despised for his claim of divinity. That's what they hated. His claim to be God. Prophesy to us, demanded the religious officers as they beat him and spit upon him. But this morning we take a sharp turn. In, in great contrast, in the hands of the Roman military, we see a totally different target of the ire of the persecutors of Jesus. In the hands of the Romans, it is the royalty of Christ, his kingship that they brutally mock. Ironically, Jesus was and is God, even as the Sanhedrin hated everything he said. Ironically, he was and is king. Yet these are the things that the people most hated and rebelled violently against in the very final hours of his life on earth. They unequivocally refused to worship him as God, and they foolishly made mockery of him as a king. Now, as you read the scriptures, 
on your own. What do you make of all this when you read the Bible's account of Jesus' final hours? What do you make of this? Honestly, the scriptures portray a very restrained description of the heinous brutality suffered by Christ. If you read them, there are no horrifying details of the copious blood, the length of the thorns, or the composition of a scourge, nor the horrifying laceration and filleting it produced. Nothing is really stated about the exhaustion, the hunger, the sleeplessness, and the sheer agony of Christ, as perhaps I'm guilty of doing even now. Why is that? Why is it? It is not that man has not made much effort to do so. Books describing the specific horrors of scourgings and the Roman practice of crucifixion abound. Movies, movies with vivid scenes of violence are released from time to time. Why is the Bible seemingly limited in its depiction? I would suggest two things. Perhaps it is due in some part to the fact that crucifixion and other forms of Roman brutality were simply a way of life. It is estimated that 30,000 victims were crucified by Rome and Judea during the time of Christ. 30,000 crucifixions. The morbid specifics were all too familiar to first century readers of the Gospels. But But I want to suggest to you that even more so it is because something far more catastrophic on a universal level far surpassing the events on the streets in Jerusalem ascending into the heavenly realms of God and plummeting into the depths of satanic evil was actually taking place. The eternal king and creator of heaven was humbling himself before the finite tiny creatures he had made in his own image, humbling himself before them. Please turn in your scriptures to chapter to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, beginning with verse three. Paul wrote these words. And think of what the theme is. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Take those first two verses, those introductory verses, and what is the theme? What is the theme of those two? It is humility, is it not? Look at what it says. Uh, Do nothing out of vain conceit or or selfish interests. Uh, Put others above yourself. Look not for yours. Humility, humility, humility. Four or five different kind of representations of that. And here's the reason. Here's the reason why humility is so strongly emphasized. Verse 5. Let this mind, this humble mind, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, something to be grasped and held tightly to, to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. And he took the form of a slave. And he came in the likeness of men. And he was found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
In the nine verses before us this morning, we will see the phrase of verse 8 lived out in depth by the sovereign and most humble Jesus Christ. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Please pray with me. Father, we, we begin to look into the depths of this hideous, dark moment of brutality that was poured out upon you by evil and vile men of which we would have been party, many of us. Lord, please reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. Lord God of heaven, our, our king, our creator, our ruler, please have mercy upon us and be so kind as to give us a greater glimpse of you, of who you are as we look at this, that we would give you greater glory, that we would praise you, we would worship you and give you thanks. In your name I pray, amen. In verse 15 we have Pilate under the yoke of the people. Pilate under the yoke of the people. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Wanting to gratify, wishing to satisfy, willing to content the crowd. Mark repeatedly brings up the crowd, the multitude. In verses 8 through 14, just seven verses, they are referred to by name or pronoun 11 times. They yell at Pilate. They are stirred up by the priests. They demand from Pilate. They insist on the murder of Christ. They will not relent. Pilate asks for their opinion. And receives their demand. He tells them Jesus is innocent. Then they scream crucify him. We see Pilate's inept leadership. Has led to this crisis. Now his cowardice and political instability. Overwhelm the truth of the innocence of Jesus. So he gives in. He gives up. Luke in his portrayal of this in chapter 23 verse 25 he dramatically juxtaposes the two sides of Pilate's tragic concession and we read in Luke and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison but he delivered Jesus to their will he set free the heinous criminal, the one who had taken life and through the violent rebellion of an insurrection that hated Pilate and everything Roman. And the punishment due to Barabbas, the murderer and rebel, Pilate places upon Jesus. The one who had healed, had fed, and brought peace to the demon-possessed and had literally raised the dead to life. A murderer and a life giver. But before he will be executed, Pilate and the Romans have another sadistic custom. Jesus must be scourged. Scourging was commonly inflicted upon those condemned to crucifixion. It was humiliating and unimaginably painful. But it also served to shorten the time for death on the cross. Ever the pragmatics. The hands of the victim would often be tied to a pole above his head to stretch out the body. Two inflictors would alternately strike the victim. The tool of torture, the scourge, was a wooden handle 
having several long strips of leather fastened to it, with pieces of bone and sharp metal and stone braided into the leather. As the scourge would strike, it would cut and bruise. And as it was brought back for another blow, the bone and metal pieces would pull away flesh. Unlike the 39 lashes administered with the common whip by the Jews, there was no set limit to the number of blows in a Roman scourging. While it was not designed for execution, its victims would often die before ever making it to the final destiny of the cross. Jesus suffers the scourger's vicious blows. He barely stands. He is bloodied. He is lacerated and exhausted. His clothing, removed for the scourging, were put back on him and are now covered with blood, the grime and the filth of the beating floor, and the spit of the men. And now with only hours remaining before being nailed to the cross, Jesus is placed in an ordeal of hideous brutality and perversion at the hands of Roman soldiers. Verse 16, we find here the mockery of men. The mockery of men. There is a certain sense of anonymity in the crowd. There is. My father, my father often, and I remember this probably as much as anything he ever told me. He warned me, son, you will do far worse things when you are caught up in the frenzy of the mob. Beware of crowds. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. You see, the crowd had served as prosecutor before Pilate and Christ. But now that role shifts into the hands of the soldiers of Rome. The soldiers are specifically cited now. They are cited 11 times. And clearly implied another 5 times for committing atrocity against Jesus. 16 times. They own this phase of brutality against God's Son. None of them can justifiably use the alibi, I was only following orders. The Praetorium. The Praetorium we read about was likely a large hall within Herod's palace. It was the official residence of the governor while he was in Jerusalem. Jewish historian Josephus describes the size and splendor of this palace as having enough bedchambers for a hundred guests. Normally Pilate would be staying at the governor's mansion in the city of Caesarea Maritima. But celebrations like the Passover required that he be present in Jerusalem to keep a vigilant eye over the swelling city. Worshippers poured into that city by the tens of thousands. The commentator Edwards wrote, Pilgrims flooded the city with prayers and sometimes plans for liberation from Rome. Pilate must be there. And in this massive hall called the Praetorium are gathered a garrison. Some of yours read a Roman cohort or a battalion. It's a term that means a tenth of a Roman legion. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. In other words, about 600 hardened military men have assembled. Have you imagined it that way before? 600. They have come to participate in the humiliation of their latest political prisoner headed for crucifixion. And this is by no means a small event in the life of these soldiers. 
History records the Roman soldiers made great sport of these execution proceedings. For amusement, it is said that they would often take victims after ruthlessly beating and torturing them and dress them up and shove them about like living pieces on a life-size game board. With death and brutality as their way of life, these Roman soldiers knew no limits to cruelty and perversion. A threefold mockery now unfolds on the floor of the praetorium. We begin with the twisted crown in verse 17. And let me speak of that clothing. They clothed him with purple. Matthew includes the perversion of these oppressors. It says, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The word stripped here is the same way Jesus describes the treatment of a certain man he told of in Luke 10 that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. He was stripped and naked before these ruthless, barbaric men and put a cloth, a cloak around him. And it says, then they clothed him and they dressed him up, says New American Standard. They dressed him up. Christ the Lord, this Jewish wannabe king in the eyes of the world, was a joke to these soldiers. They dressed him up in the royalty of a purple faux robe like a child playing with human-sized dolls. That's all he was. And then they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Now, when we think of that, to really understand the importance of this specific description of the thorns, notice what is not portrayed. What is not there? We don't see the size of the thorns. There's nothing mentioned about the intense bleeding that would have covered the face and head of Christ. Nor are we told of the excruciating pain that had to be there. Mark, the author here, is telling us of a crown. The formation of a crown. Perhaps with the thorns, we read, even like the radiance from the emperor's crown that was depicted on their coinage. His crown would have these radiations coming from it. And these men have fastened this, this, this crown out of thorns with long thorns and placed upon his head. It was pure royal mockery with the added sadistic effect of pain and disfigurement. But the mockery is what they're about here. The taunting praise in verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. You see, the emperor Caesar demanded praise from his Roman subjects with the cry, Ave Caesar, victor, imperator. And now these soldiers chide this wannabe king Jesus with, Ave, or hail, the king of the Jews. The king. This is the theme the mockers of Christ shift to in these closing hours. We read in Mark 15. This theme the Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. Mark 15, 9. But Pilate answered him saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Mark 15, 12. Pilate answers and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And the inscription on his accusation was written above him in Mark 15, 26. The king of the Jews. At the foot of the cross, the chief priests and scribes mocking among themselves will utter, Let the Christ, 
the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then in final denial, Pilate said to them in John 19, 15, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And then the torturous homage, verse 19. Then they struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Matthew 27, verses 29 and 30 read, When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. The reed, it was a staff. It was a staff of hard papyrus. Then it was shoved in the hand of Jesus to resemble a royal scepter. But then it was used by the guards to repeatedly club Jesus Christ over the head. The NIV reads, again and again they struck him. They kept beating his head. In the New American Standard. ESV says they were striking him. It was continuous and it was extended. The beating of Christ across his head with this rod. And then it reads and they spat on him. The religious elites had done the very same thing a few hours earlier. And now these vile Romans add their spit to the face and body of our Christ. Have you ever been spit on? Have you ever been spit on? Let me ask you. Have you ever spit on anyone? I can answer affirmative on both sides. It is a shameful thing. And you do it in disgust. You do it out of, out of total lack of control. And it is done in anger. And you despise the one you spit on or you know they despise you like a dog when they spit on you. They spat on the king of kings. It places the target person at the lowest place possible. Spew him out of your mouth, spit on him. But Jesus knew it was coming. He had told his own men in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him. Jesus enters knowing all that will occur. And then we read, they bow the knee and they worship him. Another version says, kneeling down in homage, falling on their knees, they paid him homage. The soldiers mockingly worshiped Jesus. It's, it's this word proskuneo. And it is a word that pictures, according to one concordance, to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn or to crouch, to prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence to, to adore. And it is a physical demonstration of worship and it is beautiful and it is worthy as a response to Jesus when the heart is surrendered to him. But in this moment, by these scorners, it is the ultimate derision. This is perhaps the pinnacle of their contempt for Christ. You wonder, it just seems to go, go, and go. Was Satan, was Satan hoping to push Jesus beyond his point of humility? Would Christ finally break out of such ridicule from the foolish mortals 
whose very lives he himself was sustaining as they spit on him and beat him. Look inside this moment at what is at stake. Jesus is tempted to shed his humility. He had been tempted to shed this moment a few years earlier at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 5. When he is in the wilderness with Satan, we read in verse five, Matthew 4 verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, this was after... Forty days of fasting, leaving Jesus hungry and exhausted. But he chose, just as he did in these last few hours of his lifetime, obedience. And he based that obedience on this verse from 1 Peter 2. He who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but remember this, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Brothers and sisters, I know I have said this before, but you will be in this point someday, some of you, I am confident. And this will be your hope. When everything breaks down around you, and you're being treated with disdain, lies are being told about you, you're being beaten almost senseless. Everything has fallen away. That is where Jesus is. There is no one at his side now. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And when they had mocked him, verse 20, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him. Multiplied humiliation and diminution. He was mocked as a pretend wannabe king, and now he is reduced to the rank of a defeated prisoner of war. And they led him out to crucify him. Can you imagine that? These petty soldiers, we know none of their names. They lead the king of creation out like a wounded dog to be murdered. Only a few hours earlier, in the garden, it says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. At the same time, in Matthew 26, Peter had pulled out his sword, cut off the ear of a servant. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus was unwavering. He stayed the course because he committed himself 
to him who judges righteously. We can do that. And then they take Jesus outside the city. And we see the suffering in a privilege and in faithfulness. We read of a very unique account of a privileged passerby in verse 21. A privileged passerby. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. The Roman soldiers did not do as Pilate. They did not ask the crowd for their opinion or if someone wanted to volunteer to carry the cross. Rome had absolute authority in these matters of common citizenry, so they compelled Simon to pick up that cross and carry it to the site of execution. Compelled is a word that also describes an animal driven to the slaughter. He had no choice. Get in here and carry this cross. What do we know about this man? Well, what do we know about this man? Pressed into perhaps the most unique privilege of all time. That's a big statement. The most unique privilege of all time. Some may justifiably take issue with that description of his role. But personally, you think, can you imagine anything at face value comparable to this? What do we know about this man? He was passing by. His arrival on this moment is unsuspected and certainly unplanned. We know how God works in some of these situations. How many times have we shared in testimony about the amazing providence of God in bringing one of us into a divinely appointed time and location with another person? And that's Simon. By God's providence, he happens to be minding his own business, walking along, And now all of a sudden he's being thrown under this cross. But what a testimony that would have been. Simon of Cyrene is his name. Cyrene is current day Libya. It is along the north coast of Africa. At the time of Christ it contained a large Jewish settlement. Simon had likely traveled to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover celebration. Remember too, the Passover was only held in Jerusalem. He had come for this great celebration. It would have been a very special opportunity for this man. The Passover feasts and the sacrifices were about to go into full celebration mode. But we also know a very unique detail. He was father of Alexander and Rufus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Simon. But only Mark records the name of his sons, Alexander and Rufus. There is a reason for that. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. In fact, to a specified church in Rome. If I was to say to you something like this, and and some of you guys don't know him. There's a man named Ethan. He's the father of Matt and Ben and Dave. Ethan. Well, you don't know Ethan, perhaps, but you do know our brothers here that are with us this morning, for they're in the church with us. We love them. We know them. We know their families. That is what Mark is doing here. The audience to his gospel may not have known Simon, but they know his sons 
Rufus, and Alexander. A surprising number of scholars believe with confidence that the mention of these sons is because both Alexander and Rufus are a part of the church in Rome that Mark is addressing. Paul wrote in Romans 16 verse 13. Romans 16. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. And some of those in the group may have been able to say, well, we know Rufus in our church. Wow, his dad actually carried Jesus' cross for him. Now, I wouldn't hold this with, you know, put my life on it, but it seems to make sense. And many of the scholars believe that's the connection, the personal reason why Mark displays this or depicts this differently, including these brothers. They were members of the church to which this gospel was sent. And he was told to bear or carry Jesus' cross. Jesus' humanity and humility are in full display. The cross beam, which is called the patibulum, is what most commentators believe is mentioned here. Not the entire cross likely, but the cross beam. And it likely weighed somewhere around 30 to 40 pounds. It's not that terribly heavy actually. But under the extended brutal beating, the massive blood loss, the fatigue, hunger, and sleeplessness of the last 24 hours for Jesus, he was in no shape to be able to lift it. It says that they brought him then to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. The faithful suffering servant. The place Golgotha. It was notoriously well known to the audience Mark wrote to. What an amazing tiny piece of real estate. Though most of those in Rome had never been there, they could picture it. They would understand it. And there are a couple of prominent locations are he- that are held as the authentic singular spot on this planet. You imagine that spot. It is the place where Jesus Christ gave his life and paid the debt of sin owed by millions of his sons and daughters. But guess what? We don't really know where that was. Can you imagine if we did? Already, as many of you know and some of you have been, there are monuments and cathedrals that cover the landscape where Jesus may have been crucified, buried, and rose on the third day. They usually, if they are honest, honest, contain this caveat, the most widely held, or the place believed to be the site of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But we really only know this. It is outside the walls of Jerusalem, according to Hebrews chapter 13. It is in a garden, John 19, and near the city, John 19, and it was called Golgotha, meaning the place of a skull. In one of the most widely supported sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, people literally weep and bow down to kiss large rocks or pieces of wood or entrances to a nearby cave in vain effort to draw near to Christ Jesus. But to boldly proclaim salvation through faith in Jesus alone will get you promptly escorted out the door. That's what we have there. I've seen it. 
The scriptures are clear. The focus is not where it took place, but what happened at the time. You see before Golgotha, Jerusalem, Judea, the Middle East, or the entire world, wherever created, God had appointed a specific time and place where the singular event that would save men and women out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from a godless eternity in hell and transform them into sons and daughters of God. A singular place where that would occur in a singular time. Through the crucifixion on Golgotha, a people who were not a people would become the people of God. People who had not received mercy now receive mercy from Yahweh. But more on that next week. We're not going into that anymore. We read now that they've gotten to Golgotha. They give Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink, according to Matthew 27. You see, a thousand years earlier, in Psalm 69, David had written this. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. What is gall? Gall simply is something bitter. And the ingredient myrrh that Mark mentions here is a bitter herb that was sometimes used as a narcotic to deaden pain. It also was an expensive spice used as a cosmetic. It was given to Jesus at his birth and was packed around his corpse when his body was placed in the tomb at death. Myrrh was very active in the life of Christ. But at the cross, it was offered for perhaps two reasons. One, to deaden the horrific pain. And secondly, to make the victim less active. Therefore, easier for the executioner to manage while nailing him to the cross. But what happens? It says when Jesus tasted it, he would not drink it. Once Jesus tasted the mixture and recognized the myrrh, he would have none of it. Why? He would not lessen the suffering. One of the study Bibles quotes, Jesus' refusal of this mild anesthetic mixture signals his resolve to endure the horrors of the cross, fully conscious of the pain. Another writer said, He willingly suffered the full measure of the torment of crucifixion. Nor, keep this in mind, nor would he lessen his ability to continue to respond in obedience to his Father. There are six hours yet left in the life of Christ. During that six hours, he will have times where he will consciously fulfill prophecy. He will demonstrate to the Roman centurion supervising his execution that he is the Son of God. And finally, on that cross, he will witness to a man also nailed on a cross beside him whom he will give faith to enter eternal life. There is much ministry ahead of Jesus, even at this moment. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Beginning with verse 13. The scriptures read this morning in the call to worship spoke profusely about Jesus Christ. Now Isaiah does it again. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If, after reading this and the message this morning, you walk away gripped primarily with the physical pain and agony of Christ, I've missed the mark. What I hope we see is what we see in Philippians chapter 2. That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He, he, took, he became no reputation. He took the form of a slave. And he came in the likeness of men. And he was found in appearance like a man. Like us. But he became obedient. Became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Our Christ, the King of creation, who has reigned without beginning and without end eternally. brought himself so low in humiliation out of love and humility to suffer on our behalf. That is the extremity of the love of Christ. The king becomes a beaten slave servant. But he will not remain there. Praise God for that. Please turn with me in closing to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I mentioned a little of that this morning, but I want to leave that as our application. And admittedly, we will, we will probably come to this many times. For this is commendable, verse 19, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrong. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you and I are called. 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. We are called to the example of Christ shown here, that you should follow in his steps. It can't be any clearer. It's the example, follow his steps. We are, this is for us, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He judges righteously in the time of Christ and he judges righteously in 2022. From the prison cells in North Korea to the cells in China to the beaten and and harassed in Iran all over the world India Afghanistan Our brothers and sisters are there. They can trust themselves to the one who judges righteously. May we do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I think of those men who who mocked you and, and spit out the same words. Father, I pray and beg of you that that will not be the tenor of our praise. May we, may we not come and mindlessly repeat what we have heard, but may we come with a full heart and mind to praise and worship you as king and lift you up and praise you. And we thank you, Father, that you would diminish yourself to the role of a beaten, bloodied slave in the hands of men and fulfill the payment of our sin on that cross. Lord, thank you. But fashion us to where we will be Christ-like, that we will be conformed to the image of your Son. Please continue to work in us, work in this church, Father, that the people will see men and women who love Christ and exemplify him wherever we go. Thank you for your word and what it calls us to, what it, it commands us to follow and what it gives us as our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.